Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, composer Gustav Hoyer. Welcome back. Today we have the finale of The Golden Sparrow, a journey into the world of a musical escape room. Hopefully you've been with me since the beginning from part one, and if you haven't, I'd encourage you to go back, check out the whole story, and then pick up here as we bring to a close the diabolical story of one Elias Franklin. If you've enjoyed this series, I invite you to share it with your friends too. I value your feedback, would love to hear from you, and if you would put a review Uh, If you've enjoyed this, um, help me spread the word so that together we can share our love of music with a broader world. Here it is. Part 8 In fevered dreams, my subconscious replayed fragments of my current imprisonment like a stained glass window assembled by a madman. In my dream, I saw glimpses of machines without controls, photos of long-deceased dignitaries, instruments that remained silent, and poetry that I could not read. In short, they were involuntary ruminations of an imagination that had been overwhelmed by an unveiling of truths for which it was unprepared. As is the case with such dreams, I woke with a start as my conscious mind returned with the panic of discovering itself again in a situation of peril and sorrow. Here I sat, like the proverbial cat that became a casualty in service of curiosity. As I swooned back to full awareness, I remembered anew the fruitlessness of my quest for that final scrap of paper that would secure my freedom. I had overturned every bench more than one time, ran my fingers along every surface of the chamber. I had disinterred the interior of every object in Franklin's office that would open. Racked with hopelessness, I lofted a silent entreaty to heaven for aid and collapsed into sobbing. I was a prisoner of Mr. Elias Franklin's devious designs. My inner person kindled into a roaring ire as I reflected on the highly unusual string of people and events that had led me ultimately to this point. The realtor, the bank, the mysterious Panchromatica Society. What was it with all these secrets? Was there nothing earnest and straightforward in the world? Had I been strung along into a snare woven of someone's malice and my curiosity in equal measure? I had sat on the benches that faced the wall along which the timbral spectrum hung next to the triptych of instruments. I had already removed them both again several times over, looking on the backs to see if there was anything I missed. I rose from the bench, resolved to reconduct my complete inspection of both rooms. I took the triptych and turned it around to reconfirm that there was no writing or any sort of information on the back. Finding it still devoid of utility for my purpose, I had my first glimpse of hope. It wasn't the absence of anything on the back of the triptych that stirred my heart to accelerating anticipation. It was the realization that there was still one place I hadn't checked. In the exhaustive inspection of the last few hours, I had revisited absolutely every item that existed in either room except one. Sir Oswald had escaped my eye, or rather, his poem. In my drive to solve the mystery of the Tambral Virtues, 
I had assumed that I had drained Sir Oswald's little verse for all of its merit. I had set it aside after the cellist played without ever checking the back of the framed script. I walked over to where I had set it on the floor and turned it over. There was brown paper stretched across the back of the frame, but it was easily overcome. Peeling it away, I found my final refugee, three of four. How fitting that it would be concealed behind the three sacred virtues of the Congress of High Cartography. Suffice it to say, I carefully, but with great energy, extracted the last strip from the back of the Etheridge poem and raced over to the music box with my musical tetralogy in hand. Working the strips of encoded music into the slot as before, I listened as the completeness of the musical phrase was painted into the vibrating air. part three, I heard the music bridge the awkward chasm of idea that I had heard before, and I followed the linear narration through into part four, whose closing notes now stood in proper context and proportion. The phrase completed, and I stared at the music box to see what might happen. I was startled to hear the sound of the violin behind me as the violinist created a more lovely, living recitation of the musical passage that had just been rendered by the music box. I turned and marveled at the sound, even as it mixed with my despair to yield hope. As she artfully completed the phrase, I heard the final click from the safe on the stage that I had longed to release. A third part of the grand chorale had appeared upwards from the safe, and I delivered it to the stand of the violinist with breathless expectation. As I backed away, I beheld that the placards on all three stands bore the grand chorale whose uniform presence indicated that we had now moved into the next conundrum of this musical maze. Unprompted by anything other than the appearance of a framed part on all of their music stands, the players positioned their instruments and began to play. I didn't know what to expect from this mysterious piece, but I assumed it would be filled with mystery and depth. 
what I heard was a grating and unsatisfying anti-harmony. I knew the players to be skillful, as I had heard them individually, but the synthesized whole of the sounds they now produced was, at best, unlovely. Perhaps it was so mysterious and transcendent that my earthly ears could not properly decipher it. The music finished, and I waited to see some transformation that told of this dark spell broken. Instead, I was met with silence and stood expectantly longer than the lack of any result would excuse. The players looked toward me with their masks, and I now noted the subtle cues of defeat in their slumped shoulders. I had no reason to believe that they did not correctly render the musical instructions that sat on their stands. It must be that the arrangement or orientation of that music was incorrect. Another lock. I suspected that the way through it lay in the correct assignment of part to player and the correct orientation of the part on the stand. I picked up the music from the violinist's stand and I turned it clockwise over and over again as I sought some indication of the intended orientation. The music was printed so to look legible, regardless of which of the short sides of the frame was up. Recognizing that each part had two possible placements, I calculated that there were eight possible combinations of the music for the ensemble. Although inelegant, I could, through brute force, try every combination until I found the correct one. However, as I reckoned with this affirmation of what I had seen when I first received the first part from the safe, it was with a start that I realized there was no assurance that the part I had given to the violinist was in fact intended for the violinist. I had assumed that the part that appeared after I solved the puzzle of each player was intended for that same player. Inspecting the parts together now, I realized that there was no certainty that this was the case. So much for brute force. I was not fit to navigate an exhaustive exploration of every possible combination. Success would require another clue. Taking the three parts, I examined them together for any difference that might indicate the instrument for which they were intended. Each bore the identical title, the Grand Chorale, mirrored at top and bottom. Each was composed of what, to my untrained eye, appeared to be three rows of music. Each of these rows was a collection of five closely set parallel lines that went from left to right across the page. For each row, these five lines were overlaid by a varying pattern of open and closed ovals resting on top of or between the lines. Each oval had two vertical lines, one that went up from the right side and one that was equal in length that extended down from the left side. At each end of every row of lines, there was a symbol that was mirrored upside down on the opposite end. Apart from the distinct groupings and positioning of the ovals on the lines, the difference in these symbols was the only hint that my examination yielded. The symbol that marked the beginning and end of each of the three rows differed across each of the parts. On one of the parts, it looked like a highly stylized script letter, K. Another bore a shape somehow akin to the outline of an ear that was ornamented with two dots. The third part had an ornamented loop on the top that spiraled down to encircle the second line from the bottom. As I examined them in earnest, my memory was stirred with a vision from my past. 
During my early youth, I was regularly in the home of my grandmother during summer afternoons. I would visit her for the pleasures of her wit and the excellence of her cooking. On such afternoons of gastronomic satisfaction, she would usually move to the piano that sat in her home and play short piano works that were sweet and charming pieces with exotic names. I did not play an instrument, nor did I have any source of musical education in my life, but I would sit in postprandial rapture while I watched her aged, seasoned hands touch the keys in an enchanting dance of carefully timed gestures. The music on the piano rack was incomprehensible to me, but as I stood examining the three parts, I was reminded of the printed music I would see as I looked over my grandmother's shoulder. That music had a similar pattern of ovals and lines that would extend from left to right. In my reflection, I now recognized that two of the three symbols that I noted on the parts were the same as those I would see on her piano music. Her music would have two rows of five lines that were themselves somehow grouped together. I think they had some sort of bracket on the left side that connected the top and bottom sets of five lines across. The top line would bear the symbol that appeared like an ornamented loop and spiral, vaguely like a very feminine letter G. And the bottom line had the ear-shaped symbol, followed by two vertically aligned dots. When I would ask her about the mysterious printed instructions that would tell her which keys to strike at which time, she would tell me that the top of the groupings informed her right hand and made higher pitch sounds, while the lower row was for the left hand and the lower sounds that descended to the left with each note. This memory gifted to me a new understanding about the three parts. Perhaps the one with the symbol that led my grandmother's right hand was for the instrument that played the highest frequencies, the violin. The ear-shaped symbol, which on the piano was for the left hand, would be one of the two remaining instruments. I noted that both were lower in pitch than the violin, and I wasn't sure if the left-hand symbol would be for the middle or lowest range notes. Unfortunately, the third of the symbols, the peculiar K, was completely foreign to the memories of my grandmother at the piano. I could not begin to guess what it meant. However, even with my musical ignorance, my recollection of the possible meaning of these symbols would now lead me to the unambiguous clarification of the proper part for each player. Having been nearly defeated by prior puzzles, it was with hope that I walked to the wall where the triptych of instruments waited. As part of each panel, directly underneath its corresponding instrument, I found each of the symbols, uniquely one to each panel. This was my map. I now knew which part was intended for which player because I could see which symbol was associated with which instrument. This did not solve the problem of which end was up, but again the triptych held this clue as well. Finally, one consolidated source of insight. Beneath the symbol on each panel, there was a shortened version of the five-line row with a single oval on it. In each case, that oval was on a different line. Taking the violin part, I rotated it several times as I looked for some connection between the orientation of the part and the oval indicated on the panel of the triptych. I found it easily. The oval on the violin panel was on the second line from the bottom. 
the same line that centered the spiraled symbol that identified it as the violin part. When I turned the part upside down, the first note on the top row was different, and I suspected that the correct orientation of the part was accomplished when the leftmost oval on the top row was on the same line. This was conclusive because in the other orientation, the oval was on a different line. So, I just needed now to map the first note of each part to the position indicated on the triptych panel. This only took a moment. I raced the parts back to the players and oriented the right part on the stands of each of them and waited for the long dormant chorale to be crafted into the air before me. As before, each of the players woke their instrument to contribute a part, and the whole was something more lovely and rich than I anticipated from the first attempt. The scattered puzzle pieces had now found their proper home, and the room resonated with richness. This was the grand chorale, finally finding voice after more than a century. It entranced me as the players leaned into their instruments, and as the final chord evaporated upwards, I felt that some great weight had begun to lift from the chamber. No sooner had the last vibrations from the chorale subsided, then did the players immediately tuck into a new musical feast with such gusto that I would not have believed it unless I witnessed it myself.
all three launched into a new piece with the sound of bows seizing the strings. Having been frozen into place, the players now began to thaw, and the music of the Golden Sparrow Overture sprang to life. It was not more than five minutes long, but it was the very sound of freedom to my hungry soul. The piece darted between coquettish merriment and dark mischief, and set like a jewel into the midst came the grand chorale again. I grieved that I would never again hear it, but it was a small payment for the return of liberty. As the music unfolded, I recognized various passages that made up the different puzzles that I had navigated. The music box melody was the main star, which appeared on the musical stage after the fraught introductory chords. I recognized segments in the cellist's playing that were the different coloristic effects of the timbral spectrum, pizzicato, harmonics, spiccato. The workman's draft horse of repeated notes that the violist had played now found their duty as they supported the soaring melody of the opening music. In all, it was a reprise of the various puzzles I had faced, and I marveled at Mr. Franklin's diabolical ingenuity to create a many-layered musical lock out of the musical fabric that he was determined to conceal from the world. The piece came to a swirling finish that felt like the wild abandonment of a tipsy ball before ending with a decisive final chord. After more than a century, the Golden Sparrow Overture finally enjoyed its final performance. I guess I had been so busy attempting to exit this strange prison that I never considered what it would look like when the prison door was opened. As the melancholy letter from the musicians had explained, the completion of the Golden Sparrow would release them, but even they could not have conveyed how strangely it would happen. As they completed the last chord, the echo hung in the room for a split second longer. As silence recaptured the chamber, the transformation in the room was instantaneous. Several things happened simultaneously, and as I think back, I cannot recall that I experienced any transition. In less than the time I could blink, I heard the main door on the wall to the right behind the musicians emit a substantial click that unambiguously told me that it was no longer locked. At precisely the moment the click sounded, every one of the lights in the room went out. I had not realized it before, but there was a leakage of light from somewhere above the chamber through a series of small, glass-covered apertures around the top of the room. It was not enough light to be bright, but there was enough light to recognize that the chamber in which I had labored had aged a century in an instant. Whereas none of the contents of the room had betrayed anything approaching decay, now the room was filled with the cobwebs and dust that would adorn a basement chamber that had moldered for several lifetimes. I was in a dusty basement, and I was now alone. The platform on which the players had sat was now empty of people, and only the seats and stands, bedecked with spider silk, remained. The shock of the transformation caused me to draw in my breath, and I staggered back as I looked around the space. Turning back toward the passage from Franklin's office that had led me here, I now saw an unbroken stone surface that betrayed no evidence of having ever been otherwise. With the faint light filling the room, I was able to carefully work my way to the previously occluded main door. It was featureless as before, 
but with some effort I was able to work my fingers along the edge and finally coax it open. On the other side of the door, I entered a stairwell that I knew went up from its subterranean elevation to street level because of the small window along the wall that looked out toward a street. I was coming up from a basement. The door at the top of the stair was not old, and it appeared that it might have had visitation more recently than the current version of the chamber I had just escaped. Looking back down the stairs toward the door, I realized that from this side, someone coming into this landing would not recognize that it was a door, as this side also lacked any sort of handle or lock. It simply looked like an old wooden pallet or perhaps some rickety detritus from the building's past. I was eager to breathe the open air, and I pushed open the door at the top of the stairs to find myself in a storage room filled with miscellaneous janitorial supplies. Wasting no time here, I pushed through the next door to find myself emerging from a closet into a large garage housing two large red fire engines. There was a door that opened out to the street, and it was early evening. There was a fireman working on one of the engines, and he was unaware of my entrance into his working area. I raced up to him, saying, Where am I? He pulled back from his work to consider his unexpected interlocutor. How did you get here? It was a natural question, but not knowing how to even begin to answer the question, I replied, I, I came in from the street. I was walking past the open garage door, and I was curious. It's the Meldrum Street Firehouse. Hey, are you okay? The incomprehensibility of what I had just gone through struck me fully as I realized that I had somehow navigated from Franklin's office to the basement of the former Fort Collins home of the Society for Mental Cartography. The two buildings were over five miles apart, and I had somehow traveled through a short passage from Franklin's office. As soon as the fireman had confirmed my suspicion about where I found myself, I could feel all the blood drain from my face and my knees give way. It was this staggering that prompted the concern and intervention of the first responder, in whose presence I currently swooned. He reached over to help prop me up and led me to a chair with an offer of water. He looked intently into my face as I recovered and inquired about any medical conditions that might explain my state. I waved these questions off and realized that my only hope to communicate the experience I had just endured was to ask him about the basement. Is there a basement to this building? I asked earnestly. Why? His suspicion was immediate. Oh, sorry, I, um, well, I'm an amateur historian, and I think this building used to belong to a fraternal order that was active in town about a hundred years ago. Not really. There's a small basement storage area off of the cleaning closet over there, but it's only big enough to house some boxes and a few old chairs. As he spoke, he pointed to the custodial closet I had just escaped. There's nothing else, like a big chamber or a meeting room or something below the building? He looked at me quizzically. No, just a small area. Hey, are you feeling okay? I knew that this was a conversation I was not ready to have. I'm okay, thanks. The water really helped. I felt my strength returning, and I rose to leave. Do you need a ride home? I was instantly grateful for the offer. If it's not too much trouble, I'm not feeling very well.
I returned home and collapsed into a comatose slumber for two days. I had no idea how exhausted I had become until I was restored to a familiar locale. Consulting a calendar, it had been only two days since I left my home for my most recent fateful rendezvous with Elias Franklin. I avoided all human contact for the next week and let all the various inbound inquiries from contractors and other interested parties go unanswered. I knew that I couldn't avoid 25 Franklin Lane forever, but there were an infinite number of options short of that which held great appeal. Finally overcoming the welling bursts of anxiety that beset me, I prepared to return to the building. I was not ready to go alone. I called the realtor, Janine, and convinced her that I just wanted to show her some things in the building that she might find interesting in a professional capacity. I had to restrain the intensity of my entreaty, but she finally relented and agreed. I wasn't sure what I would find, but I arranged to meet her there in the mid-morning so that at least it would be bright and well illuminated. Entering in the ground floor, we walked through all the empty rooms which remained exactly as I had left them before. Janine didn't mention it, but her unspoken communication puzzled at my interest in the room next to Franklin's office. I spent extra time feeling the wall that separated this room from the wardrobe that sat on the other side. I had walked through a portal that should have led directly into this room, but the wall evidenced no such reality. It was an unbroken and unremarkable wall. It was now time to confront the office. I went to the door, expecting it to not yield. Grabbing the handle, it turned and the door sprang open as easily as it ever had. Before opening the door, I turned to Janine. It's the office that had what I wanted to show you. I opened the door and discovered that it had been turned upside down and was in the disheveled state I had left it when I disappeared into the cabinet my final time. Addressing Janine, I asked, Do you mind standing at the door? Well... It's just that the wind comes through and it slams. I laughed a bit nervously, and she warily consented. I went to the wardrobe, whose doors were open, and with fear at what I would find, looked inside. I saw the very common and unremarkable wood back panel of an 1890s wardrobe staring back. I reached in and hesitantly knocked on the back panel, which replied with a very solid sturdiness. There was no passage. I looked around inside for any evidence of a mechanism or seam and found none. Stepping back, I had another recognition. The odd machine that had hung on the wall to the right of the wardrobe was gone, along with the wooden rods that had unlocked it. In its place was an old photograph on the wall. A crowd of gentlemen in tuxedos gathered in a large hall, raising their glasses in a toast. At the center was a face that haunts me to this day. Surrounded by the wealthy gentlemen of Fort Collins, Elias Franklin stared out from the middle of a room I now recognized as the basement chamber underneath the Society for Mental Cartography. And so we come to the close of The Golden Sparrow. I hope you've enjoyed this fictional journey into a world of music and the mystical power of music and the imagination of how music can be assembled and uh, it's been a great joy to share this fictional adventure with you and I would love to hear from you 
If you have enjoyed this, if you'd like to hear more storytelling combined with music, uh, let me know. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter. You can email me at salutations at gustavhoyer.com. My joy in creating this podcast is knowing that it touches the lives of friends near and far. And I'd ask you, if you've enjoyed it, to help me share it with your friends and family and Together, we can expand the community of those who are listening to music deeply and richly and maybe in ways that are new. And uh, that's why I do this podcast. So I do want to thank you for joining me. And hopefully it's been an adventure through these seven episodes over the last weeks into the diabolical mind of Elias Franklin. And, um, And going forward, I'll be returning to some normal podcasts again where I'll be diving into some of my upcoming musical releases and perhaps some guests. And if you know musicians or musical figures who you'd like to hear from, tell them about my podcast and invite them to reach out. I'm always looking for interesting guests that we can talk about the richness of music together. And you can be a part of this podcast and help me tell these stories to the world. Thank you so much for joining and I do hope you thrive and continue to delight in good music. Take care.